Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. We are brought to you today by the Good Faith Effort Podcast. More on that in due course. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out this week, even though she is back after she was going to be away all summer, but she was back last week. She'll be back next week, but she's not here this week. And subbing in for her today, Washington commentary columnist, American Enterprise Institute fellow, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Matt, it's exciting to have you today to join us in welcoming the publication today. Yes. Of Noah Rothman's book, The Rise of the New Puritans. As you, a commentary regular, published the last new book uh, in, the, the, in 2022, your book, The Right, came out. That was a couple months ago. That was a book that we highlighted here on the podcast and in the magazine. And Noah, of course, has the lead article in the July-August issue of Commentary, You Are What You Don't Eat, which is an excerpt from his book, The Rise of the New Puritans, out today. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you want to get your books. Noah, congratulations. Thank you. Let's get this thing off. Let's let's christen. We're smashing the champagne bottle against the hull. We are launching this book today. Everybody in the ambit of my voice, go order The Rise of the New Puritans by by, by Noah (laughs) Rothman. Because I'm looking at Matt's face while I'm trying to mention Noah's book. Um, Noah, basically, very briefly, The Rise of the New Puritans is about how liberals and the left and the woke are trying to destroy the fun of living in America and the world today. Yeah, it's kind of like Seinfeld, the book, because it's about everything. And uh, therefore, you think it wouldn't limit your uh, remit to, you know, such a, a wide swath of culture, but that is what progressives have taken uh, their aim on, actually. And I'm, I wrote a brief essay about something today for a commentary that sort of illustrates this condition in which fun, the un, unalloyed, carefree joy that you experience from minor banal activities has become a source of real consternation for progressives. It allows you to take your eye off the ball, um, which is probably why you... Uh, are experiencing when you watch sports, for example, uh, commentary about how agonizing racial dynamics need to be inserted into your ESPN viewing and why you can't sit down to a meal without confronting cultural appropriation and why your clothes have to comport with your ethnic background and why the comedy you enjoy has to be uh, adulterated with the pain that somebody experienced so that you can enjoy a, a punchline. All of this is explainable and I seek to explain it one little anecdote briefly. If you, if you follow the news a little bit over the weekend, you experienced a lot of people who were saying we can't celebrate the 4th of July. 4th of July is, is terrible now. The country is, a, is a, 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 an evil place, uh, a place that impresses you and imposes its values on you. And our moral righteousness is in doubt. So they engaged in great displays of self-deprivation. Big public works of labor in the pursuit of misery and immiserating everyone around you. And they think that this is a mark of their seriousness. It looks like fanaticism to you, but only because you don't experience the kind of religious commitment that we are seeing on the part of the progressive left to 
alleviating and uh, alleviating the, the conditions that plague this country that, that the sins of its birth. It is a meliorist philosophy. It believes in making the world a better place. And if the world can be made a better place, you are obliged to engage in that labor. Uh, it's a puritanical outlook. It has many uh, threads that stretch back into the 19th century and the 17th century. Uh, and I try to explore that and make as comprehensive as possible a case for why modern progressivism has its roots in, uh, in Puritanism and displays many of the traits, some of them lovely, many of them unlovely, uh, that we come to associate with Puritanism. So I hope you buy it. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you let me know what you think of it. Uh, so you can tweet at Noah, of course. Uh, no, your handle is? Noah C. Rothman. Noah C. Rothman. Twitter. And, uh, and uh, basically... We're talking about the war on fun. What what now? Here's the tragedy. So, of course, there's very little more that's fun in American public life than, a, than the 4th of July picnics, family, hot dogs, Chevrolet, baseball, apple pie uh, parades and uh, fireworks. And, of course, yesterday that was horribly interrupted in Highland Park, Illinois, suburb of Chicago uh, at about 10 o'clock in the morning when uh, shots rang out from the roof of a of a second story building and uh we have six dead 25 shot ages ranging from eight to 85 um uh this is a, a place i know well my father-in-law's synagogue uh congregation bethel of highland park is there uh i've gone on that strip right there where the shooting took place many times with my family to walker brothers pancake house and right now, uh, two of my kids are at Camp Ramah in Wisconsin, and there are literally dozens of campers at the camp from Highland Park. So this is very uh, personal to me. Uh, and of course, there is some real anxiety here. We don't really know much of what's going on yet, but uh, it cannot be dismissed that there was possibly an anti-Semitic element to the shooting here. Um, uh, on the part of the shooter whose name we will not mention uh, because that is what we're told you want to do once they've apprehended him. You never want to mention his name again because you want to have it obliterated from history and not contribute to the idea that doing something like this will make you world famous because that encourages copycatting. Um, Matt, Connetti, uh, is there is there anything of a larger purpose to say about about um, an inexplicable monstrous event like this? Well, John, I, I think you're onto something when you mentioned the copycat effect. Um, we are in, a, I think, a cycle here uh, where uh, since uh, the Buffalo shooting, it seems that uh, young men who fit this profile, uh, late adolescence, early adulthood, um, clearly uh, violently mentally ill, um, are seeing uh, 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 other examples of people acting out their uh, murderous um <clears throat> idealizations and, and they are acting uh, they're using this as a, as a catalyst um it is interesting to me and something i think worth exploring further uh earlier this year israel had a spate of um terrorism um uh that that seemed to also have a copycat type uh um aspect to it and the israelis were very good at quashing that and um i, I think we need to um, see if there are any lessons we can draw from the Israeli experience. Uh, part one would be uh, totally um, vanquishing 
the names of these killers um, uh, as soon as they are caught um, so that they, just their their example um, is not uh, uh, widely seen uh, in the media. But for me, it reinforces this idea um, that we have a severe crisis of the mentally ill in the United States. And um, I, I think, especially when we look at this age profile, we may just be at the tip of it. And um, this is seriously disturbing. Um, I want to oh, go ahead. Abe, yeah, I, I'm disturbed by a few additional aspects of this. I mean, but as I have been by by all the the horrible shootings that have preceded it recently. Um, one is that once again, this guy was broadcasting for all the world uh, his crazy ideas, his dark plans. Um, he was a rapper with something like 16,000 monthly listens on Spotify. Uh, he had videos up depicting uh, illustrations of shootings and whatnot. Um, it, um, he was known to law enforcement, which is a which is a, a term, which is an expression we, we've heard um, a lot in the wake of, of things like this. Um, it it just continues to distress me that um, there is no. I don't know, some sort of system of vigilance um, to kick in when when you have uh, young men at this age telling everyone who cares to hear um, what they're thinking about and what their dark fantasies are. The, the other depressing thing about this, I mean, aside from the, the tragedy itself, um, and this is also something we've seen happen recently in, in other instances of this, is in the immediate wake, uh, everyone, this this argument starts, was he on the left or was he on the right? Was he a Trump supporter? Is he Antifa? Um, and it's particularly distressing at this point in time because the truth is, before you have any details, you don't know. And there, 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 there has been violence and fanaticism to, to a, a, a sufficient degree on both sides that, that, that one doesn't know. And uh, so the fact that it immediately gets subsumed into this political culture war, uh, online screen grabbing uh, gotcha game is, is also, I think, a, you know, a sort of lesser horror. No, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quality when you think about this. So you say, okay, look, uh, he's 22 years old. Uh, the Uvalde shooter was 18. The Buffalo shooter was 20. So if we take this range, you know, uh, uh, white loner weirdo types between the ages of 18 and 22, you know, there are probably like, I don't know, 8 million of them in the United States, right? I, I, if you sort of figure out there are like 4 or 5 million people of every age, something like that in the United States. So there are, say, somewhere between 5 and 8 million of them. And here are three. And so we're going to somehow now um, say that every, you know, male between the ages of 18 and 22 is a danger uh, and has to be monitored. You can't do that, obviously, and it's nonsensical. But where I think Matt is onto something and where this gets uh, to be something that there might be some kind of public policy solution to is uh that the the risks from people in this very specific cohort 
in random violence are maybe sufficiently high that uh, there is some kind of profiling that can be done. I'm not quite sure what, what it means for it to be, but if they're known to law enforcement, couldn't they be known to others other than law enforcement? I mean, this is one of the complaints that people in law enforcement make is that because of the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill over the last 50 years and all of that, a cop is now essentially a mental health worker a lot of the time they're showing up at homes where people are, you know, like out of their minds because they're psychotic or schizophrenic or something like that. They're the ones who have to intervene. Why are they the ones who have to intervene? But that's sort of where we've gotten to. Is there a redefinition of the mental health system? Not that there is a, a single system in the United States. There are obviously thousands. It's a private thing and states and localities have different ways of handling these things. But, you know, it's like the, the Cheney 1% theory. It's like if there's a 1% chance or a 2% chance that something could happen where somebody has a nuke, you have to do something. And if there's a chance that someone's going to shoot up a, a 4th of July parade, is there some form of extraordinary public intervention for a very specific age cohort, very specific type that can be entered into, or is this just a fool's errand? It's devilishly complex. Uh, and it, because you have constitutional rights, we cannot rely on law enforcement to proactively police. Um, there has to be a private element to this. It has to be institutions and most importantly, individuals in the lives of these people who are demonstrating observable signs of mental, mental illness and potential violence, which is why I I'm supportive of red flag laws on a philosophical level because they are designed to um, emphasize and perhaps create a culture of personal responsibility that I find valuable. However, having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a veteran about these issues, and he's very ner nervous about the extent to which red flag laws can be abused, um, particularly for people uh, who are coming out of the services. Now, let's say you... Uh, have uh, mental trauma and maybe you go to a VA uh, a therapist or a VA provides for a private therapist um, and you have people in your life who want to do you harm, uh, that's the sort of thing that they can use to take away your firearms. And so your incentive is not to seek mental health uh, because you could be uh, targeted unfairly by people in your lives who have a grievance against you. That's the sort of thing that I had not thought about previously, and it would be a great injustice. Now, does that great injustice outweigh the benefits associated with it? Maybe not, but that's a society-wide conversation that we need to have and have not had. Um, so there's a lot of elements to this that are very complicated and um, require a buy-in on the part of the public that we haven't quite gotten yet because we're not having that conversation. You know, there are, there's a way in which you can see how if we sort of pull back and look at some of these, you know, the most horrific uh, killings of the last, you know, 10, 12 years, where these killer they cross some boundary into absolute evil. I mean, not that every one of these killings isn't evil, but, you know, Adam Lanza kills his mother and then goes to Sandy Hook. The Uvalde killer 
or shot, I don't know if she's dead, but I mean, shot his grandmother on his way to the school where he was going to do the massacre. It's almost like uh, they have to they have to cut themselves off from the last vestige of humanity doing something that is the ultimate of taboos before they before they go on. And I wouldn't be surprised to discover when we hear more about the story of this guy uh, yesterday that something similar might have happened in the you know in the in the le- run up to this killing. Can Matt? I just say, John, all of this is taking place against the backdrop of a loosening of American society, increasing entropy in the system of America. So if you look at the back pages of my metropolitan newspaper, the Washington Post, every single day, there is a report about the shootings that were happening in in the District of Columbia the night before. Now, sometimes there's a fatality, sometimes they're not. But um, these uh, these copycat attacks we're talking about, um, the uh, spectacular killings that are happening are part of a larger picture that includes an increase in violent crime, that includes, by the way, I, just the um, the uh, degradation of public order. You know, you can't go into a major American city, it seems to me, and walk three blocks without smelling very powerful marijuana. Um, and uh, there's so much slack in the system, right? That that these other that these these spectacular things grab our attention, but we also have to look at this larger picture of. Um, of weakening, it seems to me. Well, you know, uh, so because it's 4th of July, there are all these polls taken before the 4th of July and whether Americans are proud to be American anymore, they think the country's great, you know, are other countries great? Are we as great as other countries? Are other countries greater than us? All of that stuff. And um, it's interesting because, you know, what you raise here is a is a genuine sense that there is a, a crisis in the American polis you know in sort of our civil society um and the question is does it implicate the country itself um is this a cultural problem that transcends our polit is larger than our politics is it something that is happening exclusively here or do we see it elsewhere does it happen here more than other places because we are actually the only country in the world that was conceived in liberty and therefore the rights of the individual are so paramount that it becomes difficult for any kind of restraint. Once there is an assertion that the individual is paramount, any effort at restraining individual actions, individual license, all of that, it sort of comes up against the DNA of our of our system is that a weakness in our system? Is it a strength in our system? I I I mean I genuinely, I genuinely don't know it. I think it's even in even when you count the numbers of killings, even when you count the numbers of murders, the numbers of crimes, this is a huge country. Like we are, we are one of the ten most populous countries on the planet. Are we the most violent of the Western democracies? Yes, but we're also the most spread out. We're the most, you know. Uh, if you if you sort of aggregate this and then you know map it against the actual numbers of people in the country and where they live and all that it's not it's not like oh my god you know this is 
you know, 50 years ago, it wasn't like this, but 50 years ago, there were literally half as many people in the United States as there are now. Can I just say, uh, I mean, because that drive for equal freedom is part of our nature is we need, we require the ballast, right? We require some, and the, the early neoconservators were always saying that ballast is kind of traditional values of family, the, the weight of family and religion and civil society. Um, but public policy does play a part in it as well. When you decide, as we did as a polity about a decade ago, that we have too many people in prison and you just start letting people out of prison, oh, guess what? You have crime, you know? I mean, of course, in the decision on the institutionalization of the mentally ill, many decades before, 60 years, right? Uh, oh, now we have, uh, we, have uh, home, we have the homeless, right? Uh, and we have some of them are are violent, right? Um, we also have now we, um, uh, public policy and especially the social work industry has decided, you know, um, if you have these urban campers, these squatters in public spaces in America cities, let's help them. Let's provide them food. Let's provide them in some cases needle exchanges. You know, let's make sure they're doing okay. the The job isn't to remove them from the public areas which they're degrading. It is to say, are you as comfortable as possible? Well, that's a public policy choice. And I think it's the same with drug policy, by the way. I mean, again, just to, to add to this background, over 100,000 overdose deaths last year. That's an incredible, incredible number. And, um, and, and yet, where, where, is, where is our drug policy conversation? Why isn't there a major American politician calling for a renewed war on drugs? I mean, I, it's a, it, it baffles me. I, I think there's a um, another way that that our s- national spiraling here is is contributing to these um, events, which is that I, they I think it's fair to see them to some degree as a kind of byproduct of the propagation of conspiracy theories. Um, when that is so dense and 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 um, spread throughout the political spectrum um, and and the tied to messages of the delegitimization of of our institutions the mentally ill uh, sort of shape their pathologies to conspiracy theories regularly I mean uh, by the way quite frequently anti-semitic ones uh, very often, paranoid schizophrenics are, you know, have the, talk about the, the Jews controlling everything. Um, this is go, they are going as long as we are sort of filling up the mainstream and the near mainstream with 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 conspiracy theorizing. Um, these are the kinds of, of things that that we risk seeing more of at the edges. I think there's also a siren song of seduction that precedes some of these decisions that end up having these horrible long-term consequences. So I'm thinking about the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill, which was preceded, which really started in the late 60s and was preceded by 20 years of, I think, legitimate questioning about uh, the degree to which the mental health community at the time was in engaging in practices that were inhumane or uh, borderline inhumane or terrible or, or awful and that these institutions were bad and all of that. So you have 20 years of that that precedes it because of the 
you know, the cult of expertise that was extant even then. And it's like, well, we don't know what to do with these people. So yeah, let's lobotomize them or let's, you know, let, let's use these. We have this fantastic new system, you know, called shock treatment, or we have this, or we have that. And then you have all of this kind of like this backlash when people see the results of these things. And that's sort of 20 years of these institutions are bad. They do bad things and all this. So you know what? They're all bad institutionalization is bad and you know what's great if we stop doing it we're going to get all this money back that we can use to spend on other things that we like more and that where we can take that money and apply it and fix it somewhere else so we're just going to let we're not going to institutionalize people we have drugs we're going to give them anti-schizophrenic drugs they'll take those drugs they'll be pacified their families can take care of them or they can learn how to take care of themselves what a great, it's like everybody wins. Everybody's great. And now we're half a century into this and everybody understands, I think, that there has been a criminal mistreatment of the severely mentally ill in the United States, but there is no stomach because of the seductive quality of this. There's no stomach to fix it because it would be expensive. And it would also have to have a kind of modesty to it. Like we're not really sure how to do this right. So we're going to have to take it slowly. And we can't promise immediate results. But what we can do is protect people from the severely mentally ill. And we can protect the severely mentally ill from themselves. At, and that's the most we can promise at the beginning. Not cures, not this, not that. that. And it's just not enough. It's like not, you're, Matt, you're saying, why don't, why don't we have a world in which candidates say they want a drug war or something like that? Because they can't promise that that war is going to work. They can't promise that reinstitutionalization is a policy that is going to, there'll be like great happy stories about how one year after the, you know, one year after our sea change here, things are just going to be so much better. And similarly with the, the uh, decarceration movement. So we have this massive crime drop partially as a result of the carceration of criminals and the, the fact that we don't let them out so quickly and all of that, or we arrest people and really throw the book at them when they do their second or third crime, because we can't promise that they won't do 20 more. And then 15, 20 years pass and they don't have kids. They're in jail. They're 50 years old. Prisons are horrible places. You know, maybe the guards aren't so great. The wardens aren't so great. Things are terrible. And then you have this whole siren song seduction. It's like, you know what? It's not them. It's society. It's not their fault. It's the way they've been treated. It's it's the heartlessness of America. You know what? Let's let them out. We'll just let them out. You know what? It's going to be a lot cheaper. We can have fewer jails. We can prosecute fewer people. We won't have the courts jammed up with these cases. We can do other things with that money and that time and all of that. And and uh, and and what's more, we don't have to look to ourselves. We don't have to blame ourselves in the communities in which crime is is the worst this is structural it's systemic it's nobody's fault except the systems and and it's just very hard to resist those public policy temptations you know what it's great it'll not only it's like when you know when biden when these when people say we'll uh you know we'll go off conventional energy and you know what it'll be better and cheaper and we'll have more and every, you know, it's like this kind of pie in the sky promising as though there are, as though every, every 
move doesn't have an offset cost or every transaction, you know, it's just an interesting problem in public policy that you is very hard to solve specifically there. Um, and let me take a break now and talk to you guys about our advertiser today, the Good Faith Effort podcast. Um, very exciting. Uh, the Bible, as you know, has played a pretty important role in American society from the founding era until today, from our politics to our pop culture. But have you ever wondered exactly how? Well, that's where the Good Faith Effort podcast comes in, hosted by historian, rabbi, and pop culture aficionado Ari Lam. Good Faith Effort brings on incredible new guests each week from the world of politics, history, music, movies, faith, even venture capital, to host the kind of conversations you literally will not hear anywhere else. You want to hear a story and explain how the Talmud played a decisive role in political philosophy during the English Civil War? Or a legendary hip-hop exec talk about how Abraham and the Book of Genesis helped helps him see Run DMC in a new light, or maybe one of the world's leading tech investors explain how the prophet Isaiah informs her work with startup founders, a former reporter for ESPN, reflecting on the Bible's lessons for having normal political opinions in a world gone crazy. Look, all I can say is subscribe to the Good Faith Effort podcast, Good Faith Effort on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you get podcasts. Listen in to the inspirational, fun, crazy conversations with Ari Lam about the Bible's surprising role in American society. You won't hear anywhere else. And we thank the Good Faith Effort podcast for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Uh, okay, where where should we go from here? Uh, if we want to continue with the morosity, we can talk about uh, how uh, the news out of um, the news out of Ukraine uh, is not good. Um, the Russians have uh, the last city uh, in the Red Luhansk in the in the Luhansk region has uh, has fallen. Uh, the Russians appear slowly, but um, uh, relentlessly to be uh, securing their control of the Donbas. And we have reports of uh, Ukrainian civilians getting increasingly um, depressed. On the other hand, uh, the Institute for the Study of War says that, um, you know, uh, the Ukrainians are doing whatever they can to make the Russians suffer as they do what they're doing. They're not, they're, they're, they are, they are imposing costs. They are exhausting Russian forces. The Russians are going to have to take a pause for the next couple of weeks simply to like regroup, redeploy, figure out where they're going next. Russian mill bloggers and commentators on military matters are being quite openly aggressive about how bad the Russian strategy has been thus far. So I don't know. It's kind of a mixed picture. The picture, again, is of a multi-year grinding conventional war and whether or not we and the West are going to have the stomach to do what it takes to continue to support the Ukrainians. Matt, where, where, where are you what are you thinking about this today? Well, I think it's connected to our uh, previous conversation, John, in this sense, is um, uh, I do, I've become more and more convinced that the moment requires uh, bold and dramatic leadership um, on the domestic front, um, and as well as on the foreign policy front. Biden, it seems to me, is far more interested in maintaining unity of the Western alliance than he is in providing Ukraine everything it needs as rapidly as possible in order to slow down the Russian advance uh, in, in the East. And um, 
I wrote recently for the Washington Free Beacon a column called Who's in Charge? Because uh, it seems to me more and more uh, that the president um, is just completely out to lunch on every single issue globally. And then I see a picture of him on the balcony of the South Portico watching the, the fireworks last night. And uh, his mouth is open in this photo and his eyes are blank. And that and that's when you start really just seriously despairing. And you wonder why people aren't proud of, your, of their country. It's because we have we have a president um, who is we have looked to the course of the last hundred years. We've looked at that office to provide direction, alternatives and an agenda. We have a current president who is just completely missing um and, and that and that has consequences not only for our society but also for the um deteriorating ukrainian position yeah I, so do you i'm oh, sorry no, briefly i just I, I think we're being a little unfair frankly to everybody involved um i i don't take issue with anything you've, you've said john the exception of the idea that the ukrainian resolve is flagging i haven't seen any evidence of that more to the point if you would see evidence of that it would come in the form of polls suggesting Ukrainians are willing to at least sacrifice some territory to achieve some sort of a peace. haven't seen anything like that. Nine out of 10, last I saw as of last week, refuse, reject outright the idea of a sacrifice of territory. Russian gains in the Donbass are substantial, significant, but they come at the expense of counteroffensives in and around Mikhailov and near Kyrgyzstan, which is strategically probably the most important objective for Russian, uh, the Russian advance to capture the Black Sea coast. And as far as Biden's um, prosecution of this campaign goes, uh, we have contributed more material assets to this fight than any other nation closely. The closest possible exception is Poland, um, which gives you some hope for the future, uh, because the uh, NATO alliance is tilting definitively eastward. Um, the expansion of the alliance, which is now fait accompli, uh, we have everybody on, on board and they just need to ratify it, but NATO will become a 30 nation uh, alliance with the addition of Sweden and Finland dramatically increases uh, the amount of territory that is on that Russia now shares as far as borders uh, go with the NATO alliance. And that provides a counterweight as, as Poland's um, behavior has demonstrated. It provides a counterweight to the sort of more non-interventionist uh, a, a little more uh, weak need uh, Western European members of the alliance. Uh, Joe Biden has done a good job stewarding that. And it was a, a real effort because uh, Turkey wanted to exact as many concessions as possible before this uh, NATO alliance expanded. And the White House did a good job shepherding that as well as many of the Western capitals. Um, but this demonstrates that a, a purpose and a resolve to counter Russian aggression will persist perhaps as long as this war persists, hopefully, most sure, most assuredly. But I, it would, I don't think it's a, it's a little unfair to paint the blackest possible picture of our circumstances here. They're not great in the Donbass, but they're not bad everywhere else. Fair enough. Um, I, Matt makes an interesting point. The analogy that popped into my head, uh, which is really wildly imprecise, but is uh, McClellan uh, in the Civil War. In other words, like Biden is this great achievement, right, which is solidifying NATO, enlarging NATO in the, you know, in the wake of the whole point of Russia going so aggressively here is not only because it wants to swallow up Ukraine, but because it wanted to make a point about how it wasn't going to allow NATO to threaten it or something like that. And now uh, NATO's, you know, larger and the area on its border that is directly 
you know, uh, it touches the Russian border is now larger because of or will be because of Finland. Um, but um, but this whole question of like that this becomes a fetish in and of itself, sort of like McClellan's shiny army of the Republic, which he then doesn't use, which he refuses to. He drills them. They're fantastic. They're you know, they're so well armed and well maintained and the uniforms are clean pressed and they're eating and they have great camps and he won't attack because he doesn't want to ruin his pretty army, you know, um, so, I mean, again, it's a very imprecise analogy. Obviously, we are we have sent twenty five billion dollars. So, I mean, we 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 are by a factor of ten supporting them, the Ukrainians, more than any other country on earth, and all of that. But I mean, it is an interesting point that the goal shouldn't be to solidify NATO. The goal is to defeat the Russians. Biden even said that. Okay, well, I'm going to push back on that too because solidifying okay. NATO was the strategic objective, uh, or breaking NATO was the strategic objective of the Kremlin. It is their grand strategic purpose, right. and the can the forms that would take are attacks on NATO nations, most most likely Estonia, uh, but generally to to present an ultimatum to NATO capitals: Would you go to war with a nuclear power for Tallinn? You know, would you go to, would you fight, uh, would you die for Danzig is basically the proposition yeah. that, that Russia has been engaged in for the better part of two decades. And that strategic objective is definitively lost in this campaign. Do we know that, Noah? I mean, since, I mean, since Ukraine's not part of NATO, it seems to me if he's not stopped there, it doesn't, his ambitions will still be expanded and well, he so has he would still look there. to Estonia. No, he still he has, has he not has, been stopped in Ukraine. He, he certainly he had, he if lost, the objective was to break the Ukrainian nation, he to lost break the, the state, that objective failed. And well, it hasn't failed it hasn't yet. Failed yet. I mean, let's be fair. They, they are. He, on he lost the, the battle of, he lost the battle of Kiev. Mm -hmm. He is winning the battle of the East. And I agree with you. I, I should have mentioned there have been some minor places where the Ukrainians are on the offensive and, the, the Russians abandoned Snake Island last week, and that was a victory. But but I'd seen for me, the most troubling part of Biden's con uh, press conference in Madrid last week was when they said, well, how do you, Mr. President, how's the war going to end? And he said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, we, don't. Should, no. we don't. We should no, be trying I, to end the war. But we I should be trying to end the war. How do we do that? Yeah, we give and it them, has happened in tactical. In a tactical, we, we give them everything. We have, we have put one hand behind our back from the start of this and what we're providing them. Uh, we continue to we continue to do so. I agree. We're giving them a lot of money. It's a lot of financial aid too. But we're still saying, well, we're not going to give you any system that can fire into Russia. Okay. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> fortunately, that means that uh, the territory that Russia has is expanding. Uh, so I don't know what that means. For the I will absolutely system. agree that the uh, negotiations we have with ourselves right. over what Ukraine can and cannot do with the weapons we provide them are foolish and self-defeating. But the Russian objective is, is was to break the Ukrainian nation state, to shatter its national identity. That is the purpose of in introducing passports and new signs and outlawing Ukrainian language and out outright uh, folding some of this territory into the Russian state proper, which I think we're going to see rather soon, or at least these proto-republics, these pseudo-republics that sort of prop up and are not dependent or independent. Um, that was the Russian objective, strategic objective. That strategic objective I don't think is attainable at this stage. And the resolve of Western capitals has, has been profoundly heartening. And it remains, you know, more than 100 days into this campaign. Now, can that change in the near future? 
It's possible, but it's not moving in that direction. In fact, it's moving towards more resolve as the ascension of these two member states suggests. I don't want to I don't want to uh, analogize or or take too much uh, as an example from sort of, you know, media media reports and things like that as being reflective of a changing consensus on, on what's happening. But where where Noah, you may be being, you know, uh, excessively meliorist is you can see a real shift in the tone of the coverage in which people when I said, you know, Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian civilians are getting increasingly despondent and all of that. I got that because I read two articles about it over the weekend. I can't remember where they were because that's the classic thing times. now. It doesn't matter as a matter of policy. What it does is it suggests a shift in the way this is going to be talked about. And if this war goes on for two years and if after four months or three and a half months, uh, you know, liberals who were all, you know, we're, you're not even allowed to invite Russian, you know, p- to show a movie from Russia in our in your film festival, because that's how strongly we support the Ukrainians. No, 18, you know, 12 four months. That, yeah, right. I'm four months and things, you know, things are rough. You know, it's like uh, then you're then what's it going to be like next year? I think that uh, when this is is grinding, you know, it's like something that uh, something that George Will said 40 years ago. He said, you know, if there had been cameras at Antietam, we would be two nations today. The media are play a huge role, outsized role in how conventional opinion, you know, the Times, the Post, the AP, BBC, NPR, all of that play a huge role in rallying elite opinion for the purposes of supporting a cause like Ukraine's war against Russia. And if they turn, I don't know that that the American liberal elite doesn't turn. I, I, I agree with you. And I think we run a real risk here of starting to sort of a decision to manage the war as opposed to win it. Um, and it, for that to happen, Putin doesn't need to achieve his uh, strategic aims. He has to make it hard enough on Ukraine that we can't quite see over the horizon clearly enough to 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 sort of ramp up, continue and try to try to try to actually help them expel him from the country. Um, if it becomes a and there's some of this already in the Biden administration, a sort of managing issue as opposed to to considerations of victory, then this drags on and then and and it and it changes and uh, fortunes will 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 go back and forth on both sides and then and then who knows where where we ultimately ultimately end up. I mean, I again, it's unknowable. We're all talking speculatively here, so the Ukrainians could have a great success. You know, they have a success, they have a failure, the Russians have a, that that's all part and parcel of a war that grinds on w- without a result. And so if you are, you know, we just we just don't have a sense of how much stick to you know, Americans and the West have on something like this. Like, do they get bored? Do they start getting annoyed that Ukraine is commanding or demanding so much of us when it actually is demanding almost nothing <laughs> of an ordinary American, except that it's government, you know, throw some money at it. Um, You know, they want to move on to something else. I will say one thing, though. Biden 
is drawing a connection in American voters' minds between Ukraine and the situation at home when he continually refers to Putin's price hike for the inflation and the rise in gas prices. And so I, do, I think it's a very real possibility that more Americans are going to start as saying as the war drags on, hold it, why am I paying over $5, maybe $6 in the future for a gallon of gas for this war that just is seems endless? Um, and that's Biden. You know, the last week, someone was asking about the, the gas prices and the fallout effects of the war. And, you know, what are we what are we doing? And one of Biden's advisors said, well, this is for the liberal world order. We're doing it for the liberal world order. I am sorry. I believe in a liberal world, world order. That is not going to command the support of the American voters. It is one thing to, to tell them, as Biden did during the State of the Union, that we are supporting Ukraine in defense of its freedom, right? It's national freedom. But then to start saying, well, we have to pay this gas and we have to have, we're having these, food, you know, they don't affect us so much in the United States, except in price increases. But uh, Africa is having food shortages because of the, the war. That's all for the liberal world order. I think it's going to be very hard to sustain public support. You know, uh, Biden, we find ourselves, there's a kind of stumble bum quality to everything that's go, that goes on with him. That's part of your, your, your piece about kind of like the, the emptiness behind his eyes. I mean, that he tweeted last week that he demanded that gas station owners lower gas prices over the 4th of July weekend when by far the largest amount of money for a gallon of gas per gallon of gas that is taken out of the gallon of gas goes to state, local, and national taxes. I mean, you know, like a, a like a, a a pump owner, you know, gets like eight eight cents a gallon in profit. You know, an individual gas station owner, whereas a state gas tax could be anywhere from like twelve to thirty two cents or something like that. You know. Why isn't he saying every state should have a tax holiday? Why doesn't he? I mean, he's already tried a federal, you know, to discuss this. It's amazing. It's like, you know, is this just like, uh, you know, sophistry or, you know, demagoguery? Or do they really not know how profit loss and a private, you know, small business works like a guy who owns a gas station isn't just going to unilaterally cut into his profits when he himself is also a victim of inflation i mean i i don't i don't understand what he thinks he gets from that who's going to be convinced who's going to be convinced to not be angry at him but be angry at you know muhammad who owns the gas station on the corner for not lowering his prices two cents have I gone mad? No, I mean, it's partly it's an attempt to get Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez off his back because they're going on about how all of the fuel increases are uh, the result of uh, rapacious and greedy uh, oil corporations or refineries, or I guess even now um, the people who own the gas station on the corner. So I think it's just a reminder that Biden is so afraid of his left uh, that he's you know, he's sending out these messages that are just kind of on their face absurd. Can I go into uh, like uh, just raw rank politics for a minute? No, I keep reading and I'm reading sort of like li li sort of the conventional middle of the road liberal conventional opinion on the upcoming election. And what I see is, you know, 
They say there's a 90 percent chance that Republicans take the House, which is probably closer to 98 percent. Let's be honest. It's, you know, they only need to win five to take the House. If they can't win five to take the House, then everything that we've been hearing over the last, you know, is completely illusory. Biden's poll numbers where the Democrats bring out, of course, they're going to win five. They're going to win 35 or 45 or something like that. But that it's now it's a toss up in the sense a toss up. And I can't decide, and granted, there are very interesting, weird problems with the way Republicans have nominated people for the Senate. Herschel Walker is clearly crazy. J.D. Vance has gone very extreme. Dr. Oz is not a great candidate. You know, all of that. Um, but is this real or is it wishful? I, I can't tell whether the, oh, Senate, it's a toss-up. It's 50-50 now. It's a toss-up. It's going to be a toss-up. You can't tell. Generic ballot hasn't moved so decisively into Republican and, you know, whoa, moderate women are going to vote on Roe and people don't like guns. And uh, and once they start in with the Roe is going to save them or the gun stuff is going to save them, I go, I think, I think they're just doing what they did in 90. They're just pretending they can't bear the thought that they're going to lose the Senate and the House. And so they're still holding out hope that they're going to hold on to the Senate and it is coloring all the coverage. Because it's like if they give in, they say, well, Republicans are probably going to win the Senate. Then that has a cascading effect. It's sort of like the reverse of Dick Morris saying, well, he lied in 2012 about how Romney was going to win because, you know, he didn't want to disappoint his audience or like, you know, or, or, or you know, depress people or something. Where do you stand? Yeah, that this? sounds about right. Any port in a storm um, and there is a storm coming. Yeah. I, I think the odds are better than even that they'll pick up one Senate seat and hold approximately uh, what they have. Biggest pickup targets are Nevada and Nevada and uh, New Hampshire, um, in my view. But yeah, they have some imperiled candidates and there will be some surprise losses and maybe some surprise wins. That's the nature of a wave year. And we're staring down the barrel of a wave year. And if you only have to pick up one net, I mean, yeah, it's more more likely than not, for sure. But you know, not necessarily a, a big, a big, uh, you know, a haul. The problem for Democrats isn't really in twenty two; it's in twenty four and twenty six, when they've got some when they're very overexposed. And Democrats have been trying trying to talk themselves into this for some time. If they, you know, if you hear them talk about coming cycles, they're aware of that they're facing an uphill battle. But yeah, they've been postponing that reckoning this year. Um, and who knows? Who know, I don't know. They, most likely that it's in, it's in peril. But you could see Republicans losing a couple of seats because they have some very flawed candidates and maybe 49, maybe 50 50 at the end of the cycle. I, I, who knows? I mean, on the state level, Republicans have been turning in Republican primary voters have been turning in a pretty dismal performance, in my view. So, yeah, they will lose winnable races. It's just a matter of how many. Yeah, the, um, the, the, you know, the House races tend to be more uh, tied to the president's job approval rating. And so we're having this interesting um, divergence in some of the polling recently where um, there's been a, you know, it seems to me a slight shift toward the Democrats and some of the congressional generic ballot polling that's been going on. There's clearly uh, a difference uh, between both uh, the president's job approval rating and the generic ballot and the performance of some of these Senate candidates. Um, you know, and I, I wrote about this also recently for the Washington Free Beacon in Ohio, uh, Ohio in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, uh, even in North Carolina, the, the, um, the Senate candidates are not polling as well as they ought to be. 
However, it's July. It's July. The campaign actually it doesn't really begin until after Labor Day. Uh, and we also found, of course, in cycle after cycle recently, um, that the polling can be off. Um, so uh, I, 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 my bottom line is that, um, uh, and I, this is borne out in the uh, simulations that uh, 538 has begun as well. I mean, I think the the House is a lost cause primarily because Biden's uh, approval rating continues to fall. I mean, that thing, that that trend has not changed uh, even after the shootings, even after uh, the Roe uh, decision. Um, but the in the Senate races and in the gubernatorial races, the candidate attributes matter a little bit more. And um, it's just the case that I think we, we're fielding a very, uh, that is to say, the GOP is fielding uh, a, a weak team of, uh, of Senate candidates this year. I agree, but I, I do think that every, every piece of evidence that we have is of a wave, and a wave means a wave breaks in one direction, and it doesn't, you know, then it's not a wave. In an odd way, if Republicans don't win, don't take control of the Senate when they only need a net one gain, uh, then there won't be a wave. I mean, what happened in 2014, again, better candidates in this year, not the same kind of flaws as the Republican candidates in 10 and 12, but in 2014, um, the polling was so off that it didn't catch the nine seat Republican pickup. And, and I, you know, it is just July, but, um, you know, uh, every indication we have, and there's so much wish casting, so much. This is an interesting thing about media bias is the extent to which when news gets bad, for the people they want, the causes they want, the things that they want. Um, they're, uh, you know, they're uh, Frank Drebin standing in front of the fireworks factory saying, don't worry, all is well, nothing to see here, gets crazy. Like this, uh, suddenly there's this talk about, oh, you know what? Inflation may be breaking because, um, you know, uh, there's some supply chain uh, loosening up and, uh, and the, you know, if you look at the long-term GDL number in the fourth chart on the second page, you can see that there's been a moderating. And then, you know, and then the and then the consumer price index increase comes out, and it's up almost seven percent year to year, just as it was the month before. And so they're just emotionally not prepared for the reckoning that is about to hit them, whether it's fair or unfair, whether Biden should be blamed for inflation or not, whether you know, the only thing that for which Biden can be blamed is a saying that it was transitory and b, you know, enacting policies that liberal economists from the Carter administration, all of whom are are reflecting in their 80s and 90s on the echoes of the late 70s, say, well, they did this to themselves with the recovery, you know, with the with the stimulus uh, in 2021. It just flooded everything with too much money. They created inflation. They should really go back to the American people and say we have to we have to introduce a lot of pain into the system in order to save it. Short term pain, long term gain. Like Biden is ever going to do that? Like you know, he uh, first of all he doesn't believe it, and second of all, no one would ever he you know he would he would never do it anyway. So I just think. I just think well, it's coming whether we this. like it or not. That's why we have an independent Fed. If, if we're if if there's yeah. going to be a recession in 2022, we're probably already in it. And we won't know we're in it until we get that GDP number, which the Atlanta Fed now says is going to be pretty bad. 
but then it's you know the average recession is what 10 months could be longer we have we've actually had a couple of like unbelievably short recessions but they were emergency reset like sort of like the recession of the pandemic uh was incredibly short you know it was two months or something i mean because once you get into negative growth the odd thing is that turning around and getting into positive growth you're your baseline, of course, lowers. So any increase in the economic activity is going to push you up. Um, but yeah, it, it, the question is whether we're in a spiral where everything adds on to everything else or whether some things have been done aggressively that will halt that spiral or make that spiral less tight, you know, sort of like the stuff that the Fed has done already. I mean, it's, sort of, you know, we've already gone up, I don't know, uh, how much 125 basis points has that has that had any effect positive effect uh in slowing things down and making things better i don't know but i just i just again think there is a weird unwillingness on the part of the mainstream to reckon with the fact that they're in real trouble and what's more the trouble means that some bad candidates will get elected that's the bad republican candidates you know herschel walker will win even if he says he has multiple personalities and dis, you know doesn't pay for, and, and has no relationship with children that he's fathered out of wedlock. You, you see that. something, and I don't want to go on for too long, but uh, you, you do see something of a recognition when um, uh, liberal pundits discuss the Pennsylvania governor's race. Because that <laughs> right. is the surprise, right? It was Doug Mastriano, who um, everybody, including the uh, Pennsylvania Republican establishment, thought was just too extreme. Um, too fringe, didn't want him uh, in that uh, race. Uh, well, he, you know, he's competitive um, against Josh Shapiro, the attorney general of Pennsylvania, who's running for governor, whereas Oz is, is you know, about six points behind. I mean, beyond the margin of yeah. error against Fetterman, who ha- who's still at the hospital, you know, uh, after suffering a stroke. Um, so, so when you see some liberal pundits talk about Mastriano, they're like, oh my God, we may... Uh, they may end up having a governor in 2024 who believes Trump's conspiracy theory uh, and who, uh, you know, may be tempted to introduce a separate slate of electors. Um, that That's, I think, the only example where you can kind of see uh, some liberal pundits saying, Yeesh, gosh, uh, the wave may, uh, may be here right. and may carry into office people that uh, we are really, really terrified of. Right. So everybody, again, today, publication date of The Rise of the New Puritans by Noah Rothman. Go order that. And if you haven't done it already, go order Matt Connetti's The Right. Also, two books, one day, you got a summer to read. Read them both. Commentary at your bookseller, your virtual bookseller, your online bookseller, or your actual bookseller in your neighborhood or in the nearby mall. Good luck, Noah. Thanks, Matt, for joining us and for Abe, Noah, and the absent Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.